Good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events and places we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. On today's episode of History's Hook, we are going to look at the extraordinary life of a man who has found great success as a career military man. Major General William Hickman spent 36 years serving his country. Born and raised in Murray County, General Hickman attended local schools before attending Vanderbilt University. As an ROTC student there, upon graduation, he was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant in 1983. Over the next three decades, he rose through the ranks, holding various field and staff commands, including company, battalion, and brigade commands with the 101st Airborne Division. Between 2003 and 2008, General Hickman served three tours of duty in Iraq during Operation Iraqi Freedom. Serving in over 30 countries, he joined the Central Command Staff as military assistant to General David Petraeus. He became commanding general of the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, Louisiana, acted as deputy commander for the U.S. Army in the Middle East, and finally deputy chief of staff, strategic plans and policy for NATO's Allied Command transformation. Retiring from the military in 2019 as a major general, General Hickman is now senior advisor at Compass Executives Group, assisting businesses in crisis management, strategic planning and decision making, coaching and leader development, and supply chain management. Joining me today is my co-host, historian and Columbia State professor, Dr. Barry Goodcomb. Good morning, Dr. Goodcomb. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are honored to be joined by General William Hickman. General Hickman, welcome to History's Hook. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Tom. You were born and raised in Murray County. You have traveled the world. You've amassed an astonishing amount of life experience. What does Murray County and Middle Tennessee mean to you now? Well, Murray County was a great place to uh, grow up. It's a, uh, the people here is what I really enjoyed the most. And I, it was really the, the First United Methodist Church right down the street from here, right, almost right across the street where we are today. Uh, really had a great uh, environment for young people to be part of the community. And then without the uh, Troop 114, the scout troop there, I can never uh, talk too much about that troop. And uh, and I, and I want to just start at the beginning and talk about Mr. Bill Dennis. Mr. Dennis was a incredible man who just gave so much of his time, and his wife did and family did to our scouts, and uh, many of us uh, benefited from his dedication to the scout program here. So that's that. Uh, the church, the scouts, the uh, opportunities in schools, the sporting events, things like that. I mean, the county really provided a lot of opportunities to get out and really become uh, develop your leadership skills and just your appreciation for being around people. What school did you attend? Well, I uh, started in seventh grade. I went to Columbia Military Academy, and so. So, uh, and then stayed in that through the 11th grade was Columbia Military Academy. And then my last year there, it reverted to Columbia Academy. And then the year after that, the church took over and is doing a great job today. Just keep Columbia Academy going strong. Have you always had an interest from the time you were a kid in military? Well, I think that somewhat, yes. I uh, enjoyed Columbia Military Academy. I enjoyed the uh, parts of that, the discipline part, the uh, military part, and the education part. But I think scouting had more to do with it. Uh, scouts is about service and leadership. And not that scouts uh, directs you to the military, but it does allow you to appreciate your nation, the country, the United States, and really the values our country has. And that kind of uh, translates easily over to the military. And so when, when I was in high school, I decided decided to uh, apply for ROTC scholarship, which I, which I got, which allowed me to go to school at, at the university I could get admitted to, and then join the Army. And, and I joined the Army uh, thinking I would stay in four to five years or until as long as I enjoyed it. And so I ended up staying 36 years, enjoyed every year of it. <laughs> that's that's incredible. Let's talk about your home life a little bit. Um, your dad is kind of famous, uh, certainly in, in our community and, and, and even beyond, certainly. What, what was your home life like growing up? Well, we had a great family. My uh, father, Wayman, Hickman's. I'm going to go visit him right after this interview. He's uh, he was dedicated to community services. The bank, uh, First Farmers Bank, says he spent a lot of his time not just the bank though, with the, but with the hospital, the community college here at Columbia State, uh, with scouting programs with the University of Tennessee and many many other organizations out there. So he really gave his all for this community, for Murray County, Middle Tennessee, and, and, the, and the state as a whole. And then uh, my mother Carrie Hickman, who's from Columbia, her father I never met. He passed away before my wife, before my uh, father and mother got uh, married. But Dr. Busby was a uh, doctor here in town, and, and uh, so it, she, she really enjoyed and really uh, thought Murray County and really Columbia was very special. We had a really great time, and of course, uh, two brothers and sisters, and we all enjoyed living, growing up here in Murray County. Where are you in the lineup of children? I have one older brother who also served in the Army for 22 years, uh, Logan, 
and then uh, my younger sisters Nancy and a younger brother John. Uh, what rank did Logan achieve? He, he was a lieutenant colonel. He got out 22 years and because there's an advantage doing that because you get to spend more time with your family. And he's got two great uh, uh, young men now, his sons that are uh, UT graduates. Were, and so he, he got great but times he, with his family. He's older, yes. yet you outrank him. So that well, must be fun around the Thanksgiving <laughs> it's, it's, it's table, fun. right? Yeah, we, all, we had a great time together. <laughs> um, so you decided to go to, uh, after graduation from, from Columbia Academy, decided to go to Vanderbilt. Uh, when did you want to study there? Well, I ended up going in business administration because, you know, my dad being banking, I thought someday I would go into some type of business. But uh, but it is also about leadership. It is also uh, business administration includes that and just a wise use of resources. So that's the uh, major I selected at the time, and it also helped prepare me to get into the Army. So you, you envisioned at this point uh, going to college, and then the, the plan was the military just following following college. Then. Yeah, yeah. with the, our scholarship, you had a four-year commitment. So uh, yeah, I graduated on a Friday afternoon, and uh, Saturday morning I was at Fort Benning or Saturday afternoon, I was at Fort Benning, Georgia, starting work. Um, you were a second lieutenant yes. going into the to the Army. What did you want to do in the military? Well, I went into the infantry, infantry uh, which is uh, one of the combat arms. So I wanted to lead, uh, at the time, it was just uh, young men. Uh, today, we've changed. The Army's changed. Now there are women in the infantry, which is fantastic. But I wanted to lead those young men in, uh, in all the challenges our nation was facing. And, of course, this was 1983. We were still in the Cold War. And so I wanted to uh, do my part for at the smallest unit level to lead our soldiers to be prepared to deploy uh, when necessary. So Fort Benning for uh, officer training? Yes, uh, infantry officer, basic course, how to be an infantry officer, how to lead, and then uh, went to ranger school after that, which is one of the uh, toughest schools the Army has, but it's a premier uh, leadership course also. And then off to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to the 82nd Airborne Division after that. To the 82nd. Um, at this point in time, you graduated, if I remember correctly, in 1983. The Cold War is coming to an end. You're a junior officer in a peacetime Army. Uh that, that makes it kind of hard. I, I know in, in my own studies, uh, officers often lament the fact that there are no wars. Uh, you don't have many opportunities to uh, in, increase your rank during that time. What was the Army like in, in the 1980s for you? Well, you know, uh, 1983, uh, 1982 is when President Reagan came in, 1983. Uh, so we were reforming the Army. Uh, the Army tra- transformed uh, tremendously. This is really important. Uh, you know, 1974 is when the Volunteer Army started. 1972 is when the uh, last draft, and then the law went out in 1974. So the Army changed. It really had four or five key points. Uh, it transformed. From a, uh, our, our Vietnam veterans served honorably, but it was a drafty Army as we had fought many of our wars in the past, uh, almost all of our wars, really. Uh, so we were going to change the dynamic of the Army and the military. So it became an all-volunteer Army. We, uh, we changed the non-commissioned officer corps, the sergeants. They, they developed an uh, education system that rivaled the officer education system for our non-commissioned officers because we realized how important that was. We also changed the, uh, we built these training centers, one in California and one in uh, Louisiana. And uh, these training centers rival combat. You know, fortunately, no one gets shot at these training centers uh, as real combat, but everything else is just as difficult or even at times more difficult than real combat. And then we brought in these after-action reviews, these uh, really candid reviews of how these fights, how these mock battles, these uh, training events occur, and made them very difficult. And you were expected, they, they increased the complexity of the training so hard that it would, you would fail. And then from those failures, you would learn. And then we built a doctrine that we're really focused on... Uh, how to integrate the Army and the Air Force together, air land battle doctrine. And all these things changed how the Army operated from the armies coming out of the early, late, early 70s to an Army in the 1980s. And then we brought in new equipment along with that. We modernized the Army. So that's the Army I joined, even though we had many, many ve- uh, veterans from Vietnam still serving when I came in who were very excellent uh, officers and non-commissioned officers. We, we changed the Army now into a uh, professional force. Uh, in our, in to service of the American people. So that was very exciting times to be in the Army to see that change occur. Interesting. So uh, you're posted with the 82nd Airborne first. Uh, describe what your day-to-day life was like there as well, a young officer. Well, it's... Uh about half the time you're in, we call garrison, you're working out of your offices. So it's up early in the morning, uh, by 6, 6.30, you're doing physical fitness, running exercises, uh, a lot of different uh, road marching, a lot of different events with your young soldiers. And you train throughout the day, and I say about 50%. The other times you're out in the field. You're out in the field for uh, several days at a time or two or three weeks at a time, training uh, in combat operations, whatever your mission may be. The infantry we're closed with and destroy the enemy, do. We focused on those missions. And then the 82nd, you spend a lot of time 
time in, in the 80s on uh, emergency deployment exercises. And so you would get calls. You would have to, within 18 hours, you had to have your, uh, orga- if you're on this special alert status, get your organization called in. It could be at 4 o'clock on Saturday morning. Whenever it occurs, you come in, you form up, and then you would deploy somewhere. So we did a lot of these events where we would do them at Fort Bragg just to save money, but at times we would, we would uh, deploy to another state or even off to, all the way to Puerto Rico one time on these emergency exercises, replicating what we would do if there was a crisis. Right. This is Cold War doctrine still. Yes. So uh, yes, uh, an attack is imminent. You have to get troops mobilized right. in a hurry. Yeah, yes. And so you're part of that. Right. Uh, what's next for you after the 82nd Airborne? I'm, I'm familiar with you with the 101st. So when does that? Well, I stayed there uh, for uh, about uh, two, two and a half years. And then uh, the battalion, this is very interesting because it, it only happened a few, two or three times. Our battalion, the entire battalion deployed to Vicenza, Italy in 1986. And so uh, in the battalion of Vicenza, Italy, there was an airborne battalion there, deployed, went to Fort Bragg. We changed places. And then, and then they stabilized all the soldiers in the in the unit. So from 1986 to 1990, I was served in Vicenza, Italy with the airborne unit there. And uh, that's where I had my company command time. I made captain there. And uh, again, this was still during the Cold War. So we, we did exercises along the uh, northern Italian border with Yugoslavia. And we did a lot, took a couple of major exercises in Turkey, uh, about 50 miles from the Soviet Union, the, the Soviet mm-hmm. border. And so these were de- demonstrating NATO's resolve uh, against the Soviets. And as you point, we did this with the Germans, the British, uh, Belgium, and other other nations also, and the Turks, obviously. So you're getting some good experience at this point that probably is going to serve you well later in your career uh, by having to interact with soldiers and officers and uh, local uh, folks in foreign countries. Right. You, you, the U.S. military never wants, we don't want to go by ourselves. We always want our friends, our allies, our coalition forces to go with us. It's much, you're much stronger when you bring in ideas and other cultures and other training from other units together. And that's where I learned at a young age when we, especially when we would go to Turkey, because North Italy, I understood, we were stationed in Italy. But when we went to uh, Turkey, especially Eastern Turkey, uh, you, working with the Turkish army, again, with the uh, the U.K. was there, and the, and the Germans and how to defend North uh, NATO's southern flank and really just demonstrate resolve, demonstrate our commitment to uh, NATO. And so it really was interesting to work within the Turkish culture there as you moved across uh, Turkey and, and uh, driving and, and walking and using helicopters and whatever else, how we got around. Hmm. And you made captain uh, while you were there. Yes, my captain was there. That's when I moved up to command a company, which is about 150 soldiers. And uh, so that was very interesting too. And what unit at that point in time? That was a 325th Airborne uh, Battalion combat team it's uh in italy there was one battalion of about 700 soldiers there uh they were airborne so we right. we, we jumped out of planes did our thing there how many jumps have you made i've made about 85 total in my career hmm. um still peacetime army still yes. at this yep. point in time we're, we're getting up into uh the getting close to 1990 it's in 1990 that iraq invades kuwait yep. uh where were you when the gulf war well, began in 1990 i was in italy and i moved back to uh, nashville I got selected for a special program to get my master's degree. So in 1990, in August 1990, I showed up at the Owen Graduate School of Management at Vanderbilt University for a two-year assignment there as a student. Uh, so very fortunate there. And so uh, I watched the uh, Gulf War on TV. How'd that feel? Well, it felt uh, like I was missing out a lot. But uh, in fact, we checked, we called, our, and they said, no, they're not taking anybody out of graduate school. The, you know, the mission's going to go on. You're going to stay in graduate school and finish. So I finished school in 1992 uh, and missed the, missed the Gulf War. Miss, miss the entire thing. That's yeah. fascinating to me that a person with the amount of experience that you had at this point, you had the better part of 20 years in at that well, point, right? well, no, that was 1992. Uh, so uh, 1991-92. So a little so. over 10 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and at that uh, point in time. Almost 10 years. Huh? Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, but they, they kept you in grad school anyway. It was a really interesting time. Uh, you know, it, this was down during the uh, drawdown of the military. You could not have... Uh, Calls Saddam could not have picked the worst time because there was a major drawdown going in in Europe. And so a lot of the forces did come from uh, the United States. But a lot of the forces that fought in uh, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and in southern Iraq came from Europe. And those forces were actually scheduled to come back to the United States already. Well, they just went to... Saudi Arabia first, and then back to the United States as, mm. they, as, the, as the drawdown was going as from the Cold War uh, peace dividend. And so uh, so the Army was still very very large at the time. Uh, what was your unit doing at the time? Did they did your unit deploy? No, no. I was just assigned to school. Okay. I was in an administrative command, some up at Fort, uh, assigned to some unit at Fort Knox, but with duty at uh, Vanderbilt University. I gotcha. Yeah, so I wasn't really in a, I was not in a unit, uh, a combat unit. 
What was next after grad? What, what did you study in, in grad school? Well, I got my MBA. So I kept on the business uh, side of the house, but got my master's in business administration. And so uh, the idea was uh, the Army picked me this job to then go into a, uh, a future job that required working with industry. And so that's what I did. I left uh, there and went back to Fort Benning, uh, which is the home of the infantry. I wanted to I figure I could stay with the infantry, even though I worked with combat development side of the house and uh, for infantry uh, weapon systems is basically what I did uh, for about a year and a half. And, uh, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, we, we ran, uh, we looked at uh, technologies that the military may want, and then we ran tests uh, at the local level with real soldiers. So with uh, using thermal weapon systems, example. Thermal sites we see now where you can see it through smoke, you see it at night. Um, a lot of, even civilians use these today. Right. But we were, these are, this is all new technology. A lot of the ideas that came out of Desert Storm, because this is now 1992, 93, as soon as we took those immediate ideas and we tried to put them into uh, future weapon systems for the army so uh new new sites was one of them uh how we want to reconfigure our equipment based on lessons learned from uh from uh desert storm was another one examples how long were you in grad school just to step back just a little grad school was two years okay yeah for two full years to get to spend time with your family yeah that's why i wanted to come back to middle tennessee so i lived in nashville but of course my my parents still lived in uh still live in columbia which is great and so it was good just to be back home when did you meet your wife uh, right after grad school, 1992, but I'd actually graduated, uh, and I came back for a football game because uh, at, uh, at Vanderbilt, and a friend of mine and my sister, a friend of my wife's and my sister introduced us, and we went to a football game together, so that's when we met. She was a student. She was a... Uh, a uh, critical care nurse at St. Thomas Hospital here in Nashville. Okay. And so we met and dated for about a year and a half, got married. Well, we'll come back to your military in a second. I'm, I'm fascinated by this, knowing the end and, and how long you spent in the military. What was her take on your military career? Well, I think she she really never thought she would meet somebody in the military. So, But uh, she really loved it. Uh, you know, we, we got married about a year and a half later, and uh, she moved to Fort Benning. Uh, at that time, I was actually signed to the Ranger Regiment, which is, we can talk about that for a minute, but the Ranger Regiment is uh, it, it more demands even the 82nd as far as deployments. But she quickly embraced the uh, culture and the really the families. She really enjoyed being around the families, and, and she really enjoyed our even the moving so many times, about 22 different houses for her. Uh, it's not easy, but uh, but when you get into a new ex, every military community, uh, there's more the people there are always embrace you and welcome you in their community. So we both enjoyed the lifestyle of being in the military. So soldiers, uh, and rightfully so, get remembered for their service uh, throughout throughout the year. The wives and families often do not. So I wanted to make sure we, we covered covered her. I think it's wow. harder on the families. Uh, we got uh, married in 1994, and uh, she moved to Fort Benning because she finished up her master's degree. She got a master's in nursing from Vanderbilt while we were dating. And then she moved decided to move to Fort Benning, with the, which I was Fort Ladd. And, uh, <laughs> and then about a month later, uh, we got alerted to go to Haiti. And, uh, of course, this is before uh, cell phones and every, email and everything. So um, we couldn't tell our families where we were going. I just thought I was going to work. I don't know when I'm coming home. And, of course, uh, about uh, three or four days later, it was in the news that the military is now uh, uh, in Haiti. And so I was in Haiti for about 30 days. I was deployed. And uh, so it was a very interesting time. She really got her first look at what the military does. And sometimes you just leave and you don't know when you're coming home. Was that part of the when you were with the Ranger Regiment? Yes. Uh-huh. Explain that to us. So uh, give us some background on the Ranger Regiment and uh, what that training uh, entails well the ranger regiment i was i was working in fort benning in combat developments and i interviewed for a job at the ranger regiment in fact i just a personnel job to help with their staff section and work personnel because uh, it's just amazing group of individuals uh everybody's incredibly dedicated so it's a great opportunity and then i worked my way up through a couple other my time i went to haiti i was uh working uh, civil affairs and uh, psychological operations type planning and i was a staff officer uh, and so we went to went to haiti now we were on the aircraft carrier america the uh ranger regiment was the part of the range regiment was um 10th mountain division was on a di- other, another aircraft carrier they took all the airplanes off the aircraft carriers and put the army on these aircraft carriers and we hmm. floated around 80 it was very interesting but if you remember uh, senator nunn and general powell went to haiti right before the invasion and talked Cedrus into giving up. He was the dictator and uh, he ran off to somewhere in Central America somewhere. And so, which is good, kind of kind of peace broke out and before the war started, which is good because uh, someone would have been injured, obviously. But but the military the next day went in. Uh, so 10th Mountain went into the airfields there and uh, basically did the peacekeeping type enforcement. Uh, the Rangers stayed uh, on the aircraft carriers around the island for about 30 more days in, in case there was some incident occurred. And the special forces teams went into the op- they put 
put outposts along Haiti outside the big cities. So there were special forces. You know, the Green Berets. Right. The Rangers owned the aircraft carrier providing the uh, immediate reaction force. And so we stayed out there for about 30 days. I got to go. I got to fly into Haiti a couple times for uh, reconnaissance missions. But because uh, the Haitian military didn't fight back, uh, they you didn't need the special forces to do that type of mission. Hmm. So we did it for about 30 days, and we came back to Fort Benning. Interesting. Yes. Uh, so you spent the whole time on ship. You said you did some recon. Yeah, we got to fly in for a few hours a couple of times. The rest of the time we were on ship with uh, different alerts for the uh, the combat force, different alerts uh, with helicopters there. It was very interesting to watch a uh, an aircraft carrier. This is the USS America, with again, with was just packed full of uh, special operations helicopters. And then uh, I was on staff now. Uh, okay. I, was, I was a staff officer. But we also had some uh, companies there of rangers, the combat force, and just stay there prepared to go into Haiti if, if they were needed, if something occurred. Explain our listeners what it means to be a staff officer and how that differs from a, from a field or combat officer. Yeah, well, at the time I was, uh, I worked on the Ranger Regiment staff. This is, uh, so I worked, uh, we worked the plans. Our, the staff as a whole would work, write the plans, and then those plans would be passed down to the combat force for execution. And so we did uh, things from studying the environment, studying the culture, the complexity of, uh, of bringing the different combat units together, helicopters, artillery, uh, ground forces, you know, working with the Air Force to integrate their uh, capabilities into the fight. You bring all that together at the plan level. That's what the staff does, and then, and then they pass that off to the combat force who goes out and executes it. How many people generally in a staff command like that, how many people are making those kinds of decisions? Well, we were on aircraft carrier. It was a cut down a little bit, but we had about 40 of us doing this. We had a colonel in charge. I was a, a captain at the time. We had a colonel in charge, and then uh, the staff put this together. Um, we're going to come back to this, but I'm always fascinated by the organization of the military and how it breaks down the work Uh, So you can move thousands of troops. You can coordinate between ground forces and air forces and even naval forces if need be, as in the case with Haiti. Uh, And deal with budgets in the millions of dollars uh, at times. It's it's pretty incredible and daunting to think how much power a single person can wield as part of a much bigger operation. Pretty incredible. It, it really is. And it's getting even more uh, as we become more te- technology uh, influenced. They have more, an individual can have even more power based on that. So it, I'd be love to talk about it. Uh, so uh, make it back from Haiti. Were you able to tell your wife where you'd been immediately after you came back? Or is- no, they, they found out pretty fast. Once you got in the news, I mean, they, they called the family and was in, told him, okay, they're in, they're in Haiti. We, we, there's not a secret out there. It was in sure. the news pretty within a 24 hours. It was in the news. Sure. Uh, we we deployed from Fort Benning over to Fort Stewart, uh, Georgia, where there's another Ranger unit there, and then we flew out to get on the helicopter. So that we get, we got on the helicopter, flew out to get on the aircraft carrier. So that took a, da- a day or two, and then we we took the aircraft carrier down to Haiti. So that took another day or so. So during that time of uh, there, was, there wasn't any communication with the families. But then once it got down there, it got in the news. Uh, and, uh, Senator Nunn, and I think they did a great job. They talked him into uh, giving up and leaving, unlike uh, Noriega and Panama, right, who right. ended up he's in prison somewhere in the United States because he, he didn't give up. Um, on the flip side of that, it's great that uh, combat didn't happen. On the other hand, what a great training exercise that was, a real yeah. test of, of the plan. Right, uh, it was. It was it brought all this together, again, with the uh, Army, the Navy, and the Air Force all together, and Special Operations Forces all working together. So it was. It was. That, that part was. What came next? Well, after that, I... Uh, I went to uh, school. Uh, I got selected for the Commander General Staff College. When I was in the Ranger Regiment, I, I make a promoted major, which is about uh, 12 years or so in the Army. And so I went off to Fort Leavenworth in Kansas to the Commander General Staff College in, uh, from 1995 to 1996. And okay. so it's a one, about a 10-month course. And it's a great opportunity to really, really dive into uh, how the Army operates. It kind of say the mid-level. You know, we're talking about battalions, brigades, divisions, and corps, the, the operational fight from uh, units for about 500 soldiers up to you know 20 or 30,000 and how to maneuver those and do the staff work how to things you just talked about how you synchronize the logistics to move those type forces around okay and then uh what's next well that's when my Fort Campbell started 101st okay so in 19 uh, uh 1996 I got selected to go to Fort Campbell to be a battalion operations officer. So now I'm a battalion of about 500 soldiers, uh, the 502nd, 1st Battalion, 502nd uh, Infantry Regiment at Fort Campbell. And so uh, I, I did that for two years, uh, from 1996 to 1998. And I had a great time there doing that and uh, really serving up there and uh, really worked hard about and mastered my skills at infantry. Okay. Um, you were there for, uh, that brings us up until about 1998. 98, yes. And uh, what's next? Uh, 1998, I left and I went to, uh, to Force Com, Forces Command Headquarters in McPherson, uh, Fort McPherson in Atlanta. 
And so I got, this is really when you are, you're really brought into high-level staff. So we're working at a four-star level command about all, so all the forces in the United States, um, the active duty forces and all the uh, responsibility for training of the National Guard and the reserve component also, the reserves. And so that headquarters did that. So we worked, that job I was responsible for planning the, uh, leading the team that planned the deployments of our forces outside of the United States. So at the time, Kosovo and Bosnia were very uh, hot at that time. So we did a lot, that was a big part of it. And then we did exercises to when they left the United States. And so I worked there for about um, almost three years. So this is that point in the career where I was talking about earlier where you're you're experiencing kind of a big jump from battalion level command yeah. to helping yeah. sort of at a strategic level. Yeah, that yeah, yes. From uh, 96, 98, I was the operations officer and executive officer for battalion. Then the Army puts you back over into higher level uh, experiences. And then, and, and then in 2001, I went back to being a battalion commander. So that, I hope I'm not confusing everybody here. But so you learn uh, battalion-level operations. You get some uh, experience with high-level commands, and then you and you brought back down what, to battalion. What's the thinking behind that? Why are they taking you from battalion level to giving you experience on a on a much bigger you need, scale? You need to understand the big picture. because So you understand your part. In the, when you become a commander at the lower level, battalion 500 soldiers, you need to understand the big picture. How, what it mean, how do you move large armies around, whether they're just a few thousand or, you know, Desert Stormers, 500,000? How do you move these armies around? And so your part to keep that flow going and so that's the idea behind it and then so in 2001 i went back in may of 2001 i went back for campbell okay let's take our first break when we come back we're going to continue our conversation with general william hickman we'll be back right after these messages don't go away history's hook sponsored by serve pro will be right back right after this brief commercial break History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. General Hickman, you uh, uh, talked about uh, a few moments ago, you mentioned the peace dividend uh, as a result of the end of the Cold War. You talked about Haiti and Kosovo. Of course, for more than 40 years, the strategic focus of the military had been on containing the Soviets, containing Soviet communism. Uh, how did the basic strategy or focus of the military change when the Cold War came to an end? Uh, thanks, Barry. The, I'll speak a little bit from my experiences with the military as a whole, too. The, they did, it did change. We were looking around and, and, and saying, okay, what's our mission now besides this defense of the nation? And so if you look through the uh, the list of uh, the Cold War events. I mean, there was Grenada, Panama, Haiti, Somalia, and uh, some of these some of these occurred um, before as the Cold War was going on. Some as, as soon as it ended. So there were still these smaller uh, deployments and, and interventions by the U.S. military based on our political leaders. But and then also in the 1990s, if you think about it, they, uh, NATO went from collective defense to cooperative security. Uh, if, if you remember, uh, soon after the Cold War was over with, Desert Storm was over with. And then the march across Eastern Europe, and I, and I mean that peace, a peaceful march, as Eastern European nations wanted to join NATO. It was really amazing times uh, as our two, as Russia and the United States uh, worked out this, with really with NATO being the, the strength at the time. Many of these nations joined, so that changed the army that was in the Europe. In Europe, their focus, their focus now was. Um, cooperative security, bringing in these NATO nations, doing training exercises with them, trying to inter, uh, introduce our, the doctrine of, of NATO of Western Europe and the United States to them, and also encouraging encouraging these nations to uh, use innovate their forces, to improve their forces, modernize their forces to NATO standards as they came in there. And along with that, um, along with that, that's the military side, the political side, and the is, is bringing those nations up to the standard of democracy that they can be part of NATO. But, uh, but the, really, my focus, it did. We were in the 19 1990s, we were in a very uh, focused, just training environment. I mean, we weren't, uh, the Cold War was over with. So what it was going to be next? I think our nation was asking that. Uh, other nations were. And, and so at the time, we could. We could take a peace dividend. If you look at it back recently, I read about when President Clinton was the uh, president, the defense budget was about $340 billion. Today, it's over 650 to $700 billion. It was an opportunity to uh, bring the military down a little bit and uh, save those resources for other parts of the nation. And so we all realized that at the time. And so what you do at my level, I was still at the junior level. You just focus on your unit, making it the best, highest range possible, given the resources you have. How? What is the thought process uh, of a, an officer in the military when you have a drawdown like that? How, how does that affect morale? And, and do you see this from a political standpoint between a Democratic administration and a Republican administration? How, how much does that affect morale in the military when you see changes like that? It, it does. Uh, when you have a drawdown, 
then we have one down during sequestration. Uh, we'll get into that later on, but the, you know that's more recent uh, with the uh, when President Obama's administration is the military was drawn down. It, it affects the individuals. That's when you have to look in the eye. I mean, I have many uh, senior NCOs and officers who are at you know the 12, 15 years in the military. They've committed themselves and their families to this lifestyle, this commitment, their service to the nation. And then you bring them the into the office and say, "I'm sorry, uh, we're 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 getting smaller." And uh, as much as you want to, the military cannot use your services anymore. And so there are programs to help ease people out uh, back in the system to join the civilian world. But it's very difficult when you have someone who believes that they're on the path to at least serve 20 years and then tell them, no, I'm sorry, we don't need you anymore. And that does affect morale. It affects uh, all, all the soldiers across the, the force. To stay on the political side of things for a moment, these smaller actions, for lack of a better term, Kosovo, Somalia, uh, even Haiti, uh, those those types of actions, from a political standpoint, how do how do soldiers respond to to those? What what if you don't agree with an administration's policy in going into a place like Somalia, for instance? Well, that's why it's an all volunteer force, and so you you don't have a, a political opinion. Uh, at least you don't express it openly. I mean, this, this is our responsibility to support and defend the Constitution, of the United States, and follow the officers appointed over us, including the President of the United States, so as the Commander in Chief. So you follow those orders, and you. Uh, you count on the American people to help uh, guide the nation. And so uh, there's one good point I didn't point out at the, uh, we talked about how the army transformed in the, and uh, really the people didn't understand it. So as we came out of Vietnam, the senior military leaders at the time pushed a large majority of the logistics forces out of the active army into the National Guard. Now, Tennessee still has a brigade. We still have a, a combat brigade. So there are combat units in the National Guard, but a very large majority of the logistics in the combat support are not in the active army. So the army cannot go to war without the National Guard. It, which is huge. During the Cold War, the National Guard's number one mission was the strategic reserve. The National Guard w- was not going to be deployed unless there was a World War III. They were not going to do these small missions. Well, we saw we went in Iraq and Afghanistan. The National Guard went with this. And the idea was in the 70s, if the National Guard goes, the American people go. Mm. So Columbia went to, to war. Murfreesboro, you know, Franklin. It's not Fort Campbell. Because Fort Campbell, those soldiers are from all over the country. Right. But the soldiers in Columbia are from Columbia. And so when they go to war, Columbia goes with them. And so that was the idea. You bring the American people with you. And so therefore, maybe you make a better decision to go or not. And the American people, okay, okay, this is not just some professional forces. This is everybody. These are our sons and daughters. Right. So uh, I think that's very important if we go. I know it kind of got off track there, but I think that's important. Absolutely. September 11th was one of the greatest turning points in our nation's history. Where were you, and what did it mean as a military officer with, at this point, nearly two decades of experience under your belt? Well, uh, September 11, 2001, I was at Fort Campbell now. It was my first, uh, second assignment there. I was a battalion commander. I commanded 500 troops thereabouts, and uh, we were getting ready to go to the field. And we got a, we turned on the television. Uh, we were going to go out for a week's training, and uh, we saw the attack on the uh, uh, World Trade Center and uh, the Pentagon, and then the uh, so Fort Campbell locked down. So we were assigned. My battalion got orders within an hour or so to go to the airfield because there's a lot of helicopters there, and we guarded the airfield for uh, several weeks. And we also had a mission in Southern Indiana. There was a uh, there was a, a facility that was taking uh, nerve agent, chemical weapons from the old Soviet uh, treaties we had from years ago to uh, dismantle and destroy all of our chemical weapons. So there's actually a facility in southern Indiana that was doing this. And so we got on helicopters very quickly within the first uh, th- two or three days and sent soldiers up there to guard that facility because that was another high-value high, high target that possibly a terrorist organization would want to hit. So we did that for the first uh, few weeks until things quietened down. We realized that uh, there were not other any attacks in the nation. What was the mindset of your unit at that point in time? Well, the mindset was as the nation, that uh, what is going to happen next? It's something, uh, the nation is going to go to some type of war, some type of conflict It's going to occur here, and quickly resolved itself to Afghanistan. Were you ready to go? Yes, we were. Uh, I did not deploy, but there were forces from Fort Campbell that deployed within the first, well, there are a lot of special forces, special operation forces from Fort Campbell that went to Afghanistan, and then following that, I was in the 101st. The conventional army followed into Afghanistan also, so we had the forces from Fort Campbell. Helicopter units and infantry units that went in there. So when did you deploy? Well, the first deployment I had was in March 2003, so Iraq. So we got the word in uh, late January that the division was going to deploy to Kuwait and prepare for combat operations in Iraq. 
about 130,000 troops, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, are there for the invasion of Iraq uh, with a threefold agenda from a political standpoint to disarm uh, Iraq's weapons of mass destruction, to remove Saddam Hussein's control over the region, and to free the Iraqi people. What was your mindset when you're hearing things like weapons of mass destruction and the controversy that came came about as a result of that? Well, we, had, we were there to do our mission. And so uh, we were the 101st. Jim Petraeus was the division commander. I was a battalion commander. And we went in and did our task, whatever whatever mission we gave. The initial first few days, we thought they, there was a very good chance they would use chemical weapons. So we uh, we wore all of our chemical gear, which is very interesting. In the in, uh, in April, it was getting pretty hot there. And uh, we quickly realized that wasn't going to happen. And we took that off in a few days. And then we went up through uh, southern, from Kuwait, uh, all the way through southern Iraq into Baghdad. My unit went out into western Iraq. And then we ended up in Mosul. And so uh, some very interesting times there. Um, I think we, uh, I think the military did well, but I, th- I think there were a lot of uh, bad decisions were also made to get us into a fight that we weren't, we didn't understand. Talk about that a little bit more. Talk, talk about combat experience for the first time. You get into Iraq. What are, what are your impressions? What are your memories uh, about going in country for the first time? Well, it's important to, uh, as, a, as a leader to set your unit up for success. We always do that. We do it in training. It's harder to do in, in combat because you, you don't control the environment. So we went into Iraq. This is an environment we can't control. I mean, we because uh, there's people. There are people we don't understand, and they don't understand us. And so I think the biggest lesson learned initially is uh, if you're going to move your unit into a, a city, think about all the risks that occur to that unit and how to mitigate those risks to your unit, but also mitigate the risks to the people. So you accomplish the mission with uh, as little risk as possible to the local population. Because we, we believed that we were going as an army of liberation, not, not as an invasion. And if you're army of liberation, and you can argue that, that's what we believe at the time. Therefore, we're there to support the people, not injure the people. And so that's a, the mindset we went in with. Talk about the people. What what were the Iraqi people like? Well, initially they were very uh, welcoming, and uh, you have to understand Iraq. I mean, southern Iraq there's there's Shia and Sunni Muslims in, in, primarily in, in Iraq. Southern Iraq are Shias. They have been uh, persecuted. They've been uh, uh, harmed against them by Saddam and the Sunnis for for a very long time. So they were welcoming to get rid of the uh, Saddam and his militias and his special groups that would do these things. And then when you, as you got further north, you got into the Sunni areas that were very pro Saddam, pro because they they controlled the country. And so they were very, they were very much more uh, against what the U.S. was trying to do. And so that's that's the that's the war that when the civil war broke out by 2005, that's what was happening. Those two groups fighting each other with the U.S. military in the middle of it. Um, describe day-to-day operations for you when you deploy there. Well, when we, the initially the part was we would uh, we would move on the uh, from the south to north into Baghdad. On the eastern uh, side of the Tigris River, it was the Marine Corps division moving north to Baghdad. On the western side of the Tigris River was Third Infantry Division. They, both these divisions had tanks that were moving very quickly up north and uh, armored armored vehicles. And we followed behind the Third Infantry Division because we had 101st as helicopters, and so we were able to keep up. And Third uh, Infantry Division would go fight and then they would bypass a major city and then we would come in behind them so my battalion we we secured uh najaf which is one of the major uh cities in southern iraq we had the northwest quadrant of that we went in karbala with our brigade which is another city and then we went into southwest baghdad and we would go into the cities as light infantrymen without tanks primarily we had a few tanks but attached to us and we'd just clear out the area and look for who was left behind and so that's what we did we got into baghdad and then we went out uh, in our division ended up in, in mosul which is most the far north of uh, Iraq. Describe combat. Combat is, uh, I guess, its abilities to uh, control the situation and, and be able to take in information as quickly as possible, make a decision as quickly as possible. So it was a, uh, our unit faced it a couple of times. I mean, it's different times. Sometimes you'll just go days without anything happening. Other times you'll get into a firefight with our, our battalion would, uh, with, the, with the enemy. And at that time, basically our soldiers would go into their... Uh, their, what they learn, their their skills. It's kind of like playing basketball. As you're going down the down the court, you just kind of use your instincts that you learn. Basically, they're not instincts; they're just from practice, going over the muscle same memory plays. Is yeah, muscle memory. That's the term I'm thinking about. Over and over again. So the same thing. So we had one. We had one great NCO, Staff Sergeant Wolf. Uh, I knew him for many years. He was. Uh, he was. A, he received the uh, from his gallantry. He received the Silver Star. Silver Star um, initially against the uh, Republican Guard outpost. But he he led four or five troops. They cleared a uh, trench line and. 
and uh, talking to him and reading his and reading about the incident, he just took the closest four or five soldiers he had. And they went to the battle drill, the muscle memory, how to do this, and uh, and did extremely well. So that's basically how it happens: is you just you take what you've learned, what you practiced, and uh, you you implement it in the environment you're in. And at this point, you're commanding about how many troops? About 500 soldiers. About 500. Yes. And where are you in relationship to the troops? Are you in a headquarters? No, no, we were moving. Uh, moving along. Yeah. So as we went into Najaf uh, in uh, Karbala, I was I would go up with the lead company, and we would Najaf. We walked in, and we and I would basically be with the lead company commander, and we were bound we were bounding forward as we went through the city. So you're in combat yourself. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. You want to? You have to get up front here to see what's going on, but especially in the cities. You can, I mean, if you're on the big desert, you can see long distances, and all your sensors are working, your, uh, your intelligence platforms. But once you get inside the cities, these cities are uh, several hundred thousand people. You, you have to move. I move forward, and then I have my deputy toward a little bit further back, maybe 500 meters behind me with the radios. So I could talk to him and then he could talk to outside the battalion to bring in our support we needed. About how long of a period of time are you in the field and engaging the enemy in this way? Well, each one of these were uh, just, they lasted a day. So we'd go in the day, we'd, we'd get it cleared, and then you'd stay in the cities for seven more days doing patrolling and things like that. And then we'd bounce the, when we move on to the next city. And so we did that, uh, it's just, you know, the initial invasion of Iraq, the uh, liberation here, only took uh, three or four weeks, I forgot the timeline, but basically we went, we went pretty fast up to Baghdad, and then we moved on up to Mosul. And then we were in Mosul. We were there for the rest of the year. We were there in Mosul for a year. What was the toughest fight you were in? I think the uh, just the initial part. I mean, uh, I was not. I mean, I never fired my weapon. I, I was with my companies, and they would get into fights. But uh, I mean, as I was leading, I mean, if, I always told myself, if I'm the one shooting my weapon, we're in trouble. Uh, I was there trying to synchronize the fight of our guys. But it was in, uh, I think, in Najaf, and then uh, we had some later in a, in a uh, future deployment. Probably the worst was during the fighting the militias in 2008. Was probably the worst fight. Did you lose men under your command? We did, and so that's the, the sad part and the tragic part of this. What was next? Well, we did. Uh, I led the battalion into the initial uh, movement into Baghdad, and then that was in April of uh, March, April of 2003. June 2003, actually, I got uh, pulled up to the division. And so I now moved up to the 101st Division Headquarters, which is in Mosul. And I was the uh, Division Operations Officer, the G3, for the division. And so Jim Petraeus was now the division commander, and I came up and worked for him for the rest of the year. And so we stayed in, uh, we conducted operations in Mosul, but all of northern Iraq, to include Nineveh Province and all the Kurdish zone of uh, northern Iraq. And we did, the division did that for, until um, February of 2004, and I came home. We all deployed back to Fort Campbell, and then uh, went off to the War College for a year. Okay, that's a, my question was going to be: What did you do after your after your yeah. tour was over? So. We came we came back uh, February two thousand four, and by July two thousand four, I went to uh, Newport, Rhode Island, to. Uh, the Naval War College. So I got picked up, which is very interesting to go with the Navy. Uh, right. What's the why? why? Uh, well, we wanted to do something different. I asked my wife, Mamie, where do we want to go? And so we decided, let's go, let's apply for it. You had to get selected and go with the Navy. And it's, it's just a beautiful part of the country, too. Uh, but it was really interesting because it was, you know, it was the Navy, but it was uh, the, the Marines were there, Force and the Army had people there also. And it was, it was a great year of just uh, intense studying. They have a really good academic program there, but also just having the weekends off and nights off and your holidays off. You go out and explore the northeast part of the nation, which is something we, being from Tennessee, we've not done before. Sure. Well, what did you learn there? What, what's the purpose of that school? Well, this is about, it's, it was about strategy and uh, really the whole of government approach. So the first uh, four or five months were just studying how our government operates, the military with the State Department and other uh, federal agencies and, and, and the departments, and how those all come together to uh, focus on the national interest of our nation in a region. And then how you would take the, that interest and write a, a high-level military plan to support that. And so that was the first part. The middle part you study uh, a lot of history, really it's all history. It's uh, how uh, different uh, nations fought over the years and the effects of their wars on their nation. And so, and then the last part you get, then you get back down into uh, joint uh, training and joint planning. So how the joint force, the Army, Navy, Air Force, and the Marine Corps work together for operations. And they do that right before you go back to the back to your next job. So this is very high level. Yes, very, so, very high. So officers who are selected for this are really being looked at for higher command. Yes. Yeah. You're expected. You're, you're you have the potential to continue on servicing at higher levels. What was your rank at this point? Uh, I made colonel while I was there. Yeah. I actually, I was right as the ending colonel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then you deployed again. Yes, I got selected for to be a brigade commander now. So uh, that's the next level up while I was in the school. And so I came back to Fort Campbell and uh, commanded second brigade of the 101st. I, I showed up in October of uh, 2006. 
I get these dates right, uh, thereabouts, and maybe uh, that, that fall. But that a brigade at Fort Campbell has about 3,500 soldiers, maybe 3,000 soldiers. Uh, we deployed, we ended up with about 5,000. In October 2007, we deployed to Iraq, and we were there for about 14 months. And so we had our, our brigade from the 101st deployed, and we got units from other uh, units from different places joined us. We ended up with about 5,000 of us in the second part of the surge in Iraq, and we were responsible for Northwest Baghdad. So we were back on the streets of Baghdad every day, and we, we really, it's really interesting. You know, we, um, this was in the surge where General Petraeus was there, and we, uh, we, we focused on the people. It's really interesting. If you're going to provide, it's like, uh, uh, I know I'm getting a little off here. The police here in our states, you know where the people are. So go be nice and find the people and serve the people. And if you do that, then they'll help you find the uh, least in, in uh, overseas. I'm, a, I don't, I'm not a police officer. I understand here. But if in Baghdad, if we helped serve the people, then the, the people would help us find the insurgents. And so we provide security with the Iraqi army and Iraqi police, not by ourselves. And then they helped us find the criminals and the insurgents in the, in the area. So commanding a brigade again, 5,000 troops. Yes. So that's a big jump from what you had commanded in the field right. prior to this. Describe the assets that you are in command of at this point. Not just men, but material as well. Uh, describe describe the components of the unit that you're commanding. Okay, so you have a... Uh you have about 5,000, there's about seven or eight brigade, battalion commanders now. So I had, as a colonel, I, had, I worked through seven or eight lieutenant colonels, and then they commanded below them. So we went from, uh, we had about four uh, combat arms battalions, infantry or armor. And so it went in there, we had light infantry from uh, from the 101st. We had an armor battalion. We had actually two armor battalions. And some of those, they would go out in uh, vehicles, wheel vehicles. Sometimes we'd take the tanks into the cities. And then we also had a logistics battalion, our artillery battalion, and we coordinated our efforts with the aviation battalion. And so we brought all those forces together. You can bring a lot of firepower to bear. You can. And the goal is not to use it inside the city. So, uh, but if you needed it at certain times when the uh, situation required, we, we brought some tanks in the cities and helped quieten things down and we bring them back out when we didn't need them. So to go back to the point that you were making a few minutes ago, you have this power at your disposal, but really one of your primary missions is to make these relationships with the people. Right. And that's sort of uh, General Petraeus's thought process as well from from what i've read uh he he was sort of a a master at, at this making these relationships within the community in order to further the mission of the military yeah that's exactly right i've got to observe that in 2003 in mosul when he was doing it he was always doing this this is not what this is something he believed from the very beginning but when he was the four-star general in iraq he was able to implement it across the, the nation so for us we took that idea of, you know protect the people live with the people we had 19 we had northwest baghdad you know baghdad is basically split into four quadrants. Uh, the Tigris River goes right through the middle of back. And so we were on the west side of the town on the northwest quadrant. We had 19 security stations in the city in that part. Our, they were either in Iraqi Army barracks, Iraqi Army police stations, or uh, some, some ho- oh, b- abandoned homes. And we would bring the Iraqi police with us. So we were all together. And, and they lived. Our troops lived there 24 hours a day, every day, for uh, 14 months. So they knew the neighborhoods. If, can you imagine if you were, uh, were across the street from the Memorial Building? If you lived in that building and you walked the streets of downtown Columbia every day and every night and talked to everybody, every store owner, you would know, you would get to know everybody in Columbia extremely well within your with the parts you live. We did the same thing in Baghdad with these 19 security stations where our soldiers were out day and night with, with the Iraqi army counterparts, reading and meeting the people. How did the people react? Well, they, they, I thought it went very well because we weren't by ourselves. That was the point. I've said it about three times now. We were, we would go on these joint patrols with the Iraqi army. And so a lot of times you get a, uh, anything. We were kind of the neutral team. Remember, you know, the, the, the Americans in the room, everybody understands we're, we're not pulling from one side or the other. When you have uh, business leaders meeting together, political leaders meeting together, the Iraqis, we were there just to assist with the process. And so uh, overall, it worked very well. Uh, and the violence level dropped tremendously from 2007 to 2008. General Hickman, uh, prior to uh, this war in Iraq, how much training had you and the force had in urban warfare or urban pacification, or were you learning a lot of this on the fly? We, very little. Okay, so uh, Fort Campbell has an urban city, a mount city, but it's, it's very small, really, compared to Baghdad. And so uh, 2003, we'd had very little. As, as we kept, you know, by the time I went back to 2008, this is my third tour in Iraq. 
So uh, we we trained as much as we could because we understood what we're getting into. But uh, the Army was not very well prepared for this in 2003. Uh, we did not. We were focused on fighting battles in the desert or the jungle or the uh, forest of Louisiana. Uh, and, and so that's not what was happening. And so we were, uh, the military didn't do very well, honestly, uh, initially in the in the war. And I think our military and other political decisions were not uh, focused on uh, past initial invasion of Iraq. But by 2008, you had adapted. Yes, uh, it, yes, we had. 2006, uh, Jumbo Treas went to Fort Leavenworth as the commander there as a three-star and rewrote the counterinsurgency manual. In fact, you can buy it on Amazon. It was uh, published. And that, that took all the lessons learned from uh, Vietnam, though, and other uh, other lessons learned from through history and brought them together. And then it was sort of written for Iraq, but it wasn't specifically. But it brought all the ideas. This is about the people. This is not, uh, in fact, sometimes it's better not to uh, detain an insurgent if you're going to make more enemies than friends when you do it. And there are a lot of great ideas in this manual. And so, but he brought that in early 2007 when he came back to his Iraq for, I think, his third tour also. Uh, he knew all the political leaders at his level, and he was able to bring these ideas down. And they came through the the command uh, across Iraq. So now the Army and the Marine Corps were doing these things together, where you used to have pockets of excellence in years before, but then you'd have pockets of um, of uh, ineffective leadership. Now you had the nation, uh, the military working together more effectively. And this is what 2007 and 2008 turned the uh, turned Iraq with the surge. But the surges, you know, it was it was people. It was about 40,000 more troops, primarily Army, but the Marine Corps. But it was the ideas. It wasn't people. It was the ideas. Where it's about the Iraqi people, not about going and killing insurgents. I mean, you, you, don't, you deployed Iraq. You don't want to kill anybody. You'd like to everybody just to get along. And so I told my soldiers, we're not here. We're here to help the Iraqi people, the Iraqi army, and Iraqi police. And the Iraqi army and Iraqi police are the ones that now need to go out and provide security for their people. Then we're successful. If we're the ones doing it, then we're not being successful. By the time of the surge, the war had been going on for some time. There was a little war weariness happening, I think, in the country. Describe the background behind the surge, the thought process behind behind it. The uh, the idea was it was about these the ideas in the uh, and, but it was about uh, people also. So if you remember, President Bush uh, made this decision to go with the surge against many of his advisors. Uh, but it was a this this transition uh, before that the strategy was just transition the problem to the Iraqi army and Iraqi police and then the uh, political Iraqi political leaders just step back. And that that was not working. And so uh, the the this new strategy was to go out get out of the big bases into the neighborhoods across you know well, I did in, in Baghdad but across Iraq and the other cities and provide security up front and you could do that with bringing in more troops and so I think this this new strategy worked uh, we'll see I mean it worked in the uh, time period where we were there uh, we can talk later if you want about uh, you know, after 2011 when we left but while we were there it was working it's very expensive don't get me wrong the American people had to commit to this this is not easy work this is uh, very expensive in the number of soldiers uh, expensive uh, you know the sacrifice of our young soldiers and Marines and, uh, and other and civilians too uh, and also expensive uh, you know cost wise you're listening to History's Hook we're talking with General William Hickman we'll be back right after these messages don't go away History's Hook sponsored by ServPro We'll be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. We've been talking with General William Hickman about his 36-year career in the United States Army. He has graciously agreed to spend another hour with us, so our next episode will be a second part uh, to his extraordinary life. We'd like to thank our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their continued support. Join us next week as we continue this conversation with General Hickman on History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster.